HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Today's episode number 48 of Feast Your Ears, and I'm pleased to have with me on the phone today, uh, Sean Gartland from Flint, Michigan. Sean is the culinary director at the Flint Food Works, uh, and Flint Food Works is a commercial kitchen and incubator that's part of the Flint Farmer's Market, and uh, also Sean runs a cooking school called Feast Cooking School in Flint. Thanks for joining me, Sean. Hi, Harry. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are things in Flint? Uh, things are really nice today, actually. It's very sunny and nice fall day. Yeah, we're having, we're having a good fall day in New York today as well. Um, so I wanted to, you know... Uh, you know, this show is is really about uh, about people, but I also obviously there's a lot that's been going on in Flint, um, and we'll get to that uh, in the show because I think you know for me as someone who is here in New York working with small food producers, um, you know, we talk a lot about the difficulties of running a small food business. Um, but, you know, here in New York, we don't really, you know, water, I feel like, is something we don't think about a lot. Um, so I definitely want to cover that um, as it relates to things. But I want to start um, by giving you a chance just to sort of introduce yourself um, to the listeners and sort of, you know, what do you what do? You do? How do you describe what you do on a, on a regular basis? Uh, that's a question I get asked quite often. Uh, as the culinary director here at the Flint Farmers Market um, and helping to, you know, run the Flint Foodworks program, I work specifically with small businesses just about every day, um, helping them facilitate getting time in the kitchen, um, helping them find resources to expand their business, um, basically just being a jack of all trades when <laughs> it comes to helping these businesses run their, their uh, operation. 
So um, the Flint Farmer's Market is, um, you know, in, in New York City, when we talk about a farmer's market, um, I think what most people think of is like outdoor under a bunch of tents. Flint Farmer's Market is actually has a physical building, right? Yeah, we're really more of a what you'd consider a public market. Sure. Along the lines of like Reading Terminal or Pike's Place. Um, it, we're year-round, so we operate indoors year-round, and then we have a, an outdoor pavilion with uh, uh, space for local growers and uh, farmers to, to bring in produce in, when it's in season. Uh, all told, we have about 50 uh, full-time year-round vendors, and that ranges anything from you know organic produce, you know vegetable and fruit growers to prepared foods uh, people to specialty, you know uh, ethnic food uh, like Middle Eastern, where we've got a little restaurant attached to a grocery. Um, a butcher shop. I mean, you name it. We try to we try to bring in a good mix of uh, vendors, and so you can make this a one stop shop. Yeah, I mean, from you know, from from what I've looked at online and and heard from friends, I mean, I actually found out about the Flint Farmers Market from a friend who was there shooting a TV documentary about the water crisis. Okay. And she had visited the farmers market, and she said, "If you're ever in Flint, you should go check it out. It's really great." <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. You know, everybody knows the. the the bad stuff about Flint, right. like the high crime rate and the late, latest, uh, you know, the water crisis and the auto industry, you know, imploding. But um, having this kind of jewel set right down in the middle of downtown Flint has really helped to make this core area of our, our city more vibrant, uh, you know, ever since we opened, which has been great. Downtown's been on a little bit of a urban renewal for the last probably 10 to 15 years. Um, we have University of Michigan Flint right across the street from us. Um, Michigan State University just placed their uh, College of Human Medicine right across our parking lot from us. Um, there's a lot of kind of educational and uh, healthcare stuff going on in our core area of the city, and it's been great to help grow. Um, so, I mean, you know, let's let's talk about the water. I'm sure you're probably sick of it, right? Everyone who knows you're from Flint probably asks you to talk about it, and we won't spend the rest of the show on it. But I am curious to know, um, you know, when I started thinking about this and, and thinking about this interview, you know, how has the water crisis affected both, you know, folks in the market, um, folks at, at the food works, and, and even just in general in Flint. I mean, obviously, it's a, a huge impact, and we see in the news about, you know, people not being able to take baths in their homes and, and the way it affects you in your sort of home life. Um, but, you know, for an industry like food, where both cleanliness and then water just as an ingredient is so important, um, what, you know, what are you guys doing about it? Well, the first thing you have to understand is that it's not a water problem so much as it is an infrastructure problem. Um, when the city of Flint decided to change their source of water, they neglected to um, implement a corrosion system. Right. So we're bringing in what is relatively clean river water, and they're treating it but not putting in the chemicals needed to stop that water from entering a home with old pipes and wearing away all of the natural buildup of minerals that have kind of coated the inside of the pipes and sure. protected people from lead in the past. And so once that eroded away, you know, obviously we have a water crisis. Now, uh, the building we're in, and I would, I'm, I'm going to speak for a majority of the buildings in the core downtown area, we've got relatively new infrastructure and piping, whether it's water mains coming, you know, and servicing the buildings to the actual plumbing inside of the structure. Got it. So... We, when the water came in, 
it wasn't in contact with any lead pipes or lead solder joints from the 70s. It's all hitting new new stuff. So it's, we, we've been testing clean at the market, you know, within our facility. And for a majority of the downtown businesses, the restaurants and the schools and the hospitals, all of that stuff has been coming up clean. Um, but we had this huge public relations disaster on our hands, right. so to speak. You know, we didn't want to scare people away from coming in and, 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 you know, sitting down to eat and getting a glass of ice water or, uh, you know, fearing, you know, eating a soup at a restaurant because it was made, you know, with Flint water. So right. uh, we've banded together with a lot of other downtown businesses to put on a little bit of a campaign, you know, that states that we've got pure water here. Um, a lot of uh, our vendors in the market have taken it upon themselves to install filters. You know, for instance, our, we have a, a restaurant here uh, called Steady Eddie's. And they've been bringing in bottled water since the, the crisis hit and also installed filters within their kitchen area. Um, you know, our, our coffee vendor here, Hot Cups, you know, she's got like a, you know, a triple osmosis system before sure. the water even hits her coffee maker. So people have been very proactive about it. And as vendors who have contact with the public on a day-to-day basis, they've been really great ambassadors to help educate people. Good. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know. Thank you for making that for making that distinction. I mean, I did I did read about that um, this morning in in doing some research that you know the big issue, in fact, is is as you say, a failure in in infrastructure and planning, not the water source that where yeah, the water is ultimately where the water is starting from. It's a heartbreaker for me personally because you know growing up in this area, the Flint River, you know, it snaked its way through a lot of industrial area of the city and it was always known in you know as a dirty nasty industrial river and since the you know the exit of the auto industry in our area the river's really gone through a, a revival and it's you know people use it to canoe and kayak on and uh, you see people fishing on it and it really has been cleaned up and then all of a sudden this water crisis hits and it's you know the source of the water is the river right. and so people put two and two together and that's what they get is, oh, you know, how did you ever hook up to the Flint River? It's dirty. Right. Right. When in reality, it's clean. So. And I, I read, I mean, you know, in, in New York City, I mean, talk about old infrastructure. I mean, I think I read somewhere that it wasn't until the 1980s that the last piece of wooden water main was removed from the New York City oh, water wow. system. <laughs> um, and, you know, so there's tons of lead in in the pipes. And, you know, what you mentioned, I mean, there is, I forget what it is, but there is an additive that they put into New York City water that bonds with and seals the lead in the pipes so that it doesn't mm-hmm. leach into the water. Um, and I, the, the, what I read this morning is that they said it would cost, you know, it was something like, you know, $100 a day for 90 yeah. days or something is what it would have cost to kind of like solve the problem in Flint. Um, and, yeah. that, you know, so all of this, all of this problem and trouble and, you know, people getting sick over like $9,000, you know, yeah, it's, it, you know, the city of Flint was under financial management by the state of Michigan at the time. And there, the hands were tied of, you know, the council people, the, you know, the public works people, the, the mayor, you know, nobody had the decision making power except for the emergency financial manager. And obviously if they're here to fix the finances, they're looking at the bottom line and not at the public health. Right. 
Well, let's uh, let's turn the discussion now. Now that we've talked about the water and, and have a better understanding um, to you know to things that I think are a little bit more positive. Um, so you know, it sounds like to me that there's a really you guys have a very vibrant um, food scene happening in Flint, which is really exciting, especially in a place where you know those of us who who don't live in Michigan have seen the Michael Moore films about you know the auto industry collapse and, and things like that. So it sounds like there really are opportunities. Um, happening there. So I'd love to know a little bit more about Flint Food Works and sort of how that works and how people apply to become a part of it. Well, when um, when we put the plans, or not we, I was part of the, the team that kind of consulted on the market when it was being put together. But when the, the project managers put the market plan together, they said, we need to make this full circle. So if we've got a space for people to sell produce, we should also have a space for people to turn that produce into value-added product and then possibly take that value-added product and bring it right back out onto the market floor. So it was trying to come up with that kind of economic life cycle, so to speak, for the, the, the locally grown food in our area. And our city has been probably going back to the early 2000s. You know, our city has had a little bit of an urban gardening movement going on anyways. So this was a, a plan put together to try and harness some of that um, that ingenuity, you know, and that entrepreneurism, and say to people, okay, you're you're taking these abandoned city lots and you're growing produce on them. Let's give you a space to turn that produce into something you can, you know, make a viable product out of. Um, and as far as our program goes, we're very, I would say, we're kind of in the infant stages, um, and we're not a huge metropolitan area like New York City or, you know, Chicago or, you know, I'll even use Detroit as an example. So a lot of the people that are coming into the food works are people who have small-scale products, okay? So I've, I've got a woman making granola, and she's got maybe five stores that she wholesales to. I've got a woman who does loose-leaf loose teas, and she, you know, sells a little bit of mail order, a little bit of wholesale, but it's mostly... Consumer, you know, direct to consumer. I've got a couple of food trucks in there, um, so it's a mix of people. And as far as the application process goes, we haven't met our capacity yet. So, if you've got a great idea and we can help, you know, bring it on. You know, we're we're welcome. We're welcoming everybody that wants who has an idea and the, the wherewithal to put it down on paper and, and get it going. That's what, that's really neat. There's a there's a space here in Brooklyn. If you ever make it to Brooklyn, you should visit called Brooklyn Food Works. Um, that okay. that does is a very similar similar thing. Um, you know, and they have, you know, the the way the program works there, they rent a certain amount of. You can rent time. You can rent a certain amount of walk-in space. There are freezer space. You know, dry storage, etc. Um, but it sounds like yeah. a very very similar program. And I think that that's you know, I. I see that happening and hear about that happening in a lot of different places. And you mentioned a lot of the bigger metropolitan places where I think it is happening. But it seems like in places like Flint, there is a real opportunity there because you have people who, you know, they want to eat local and buy local the same as, you know, I mean, I like buying stuff that's made in Brooklyn, right? So there's no yeah, reason yeah. you shouldn't be able to do that. And if people have the opportunity to sort of have that entrepreneurial spirit and, and sort of get started, I think that's great. Now, does the does – the, um, Food works help people sort of navigate any uh, bureaucratic red tape that comes up. Um, in terms of getting yourself licensed, um, I can get you all the way to the process where you're up and running, and either the Department of Agriculture or the Genesee County Health Department comes in and, and actually issues your food service license. Um, when it comes beyond that, to uh, let's go ahead and you know spruce up our business plan and talk about expanding operations 
I really pull from uh, a host of resources here in our city, whether it be the entrepreneur program at uh, University of Michigan Flint or our local office of the Small Business Development uh, uh, Center. I, I try to pool as many resources as I can. I, I am a one-man show here, so I run I run the food works, and I have a, an assistant that helps me with uh, kind of marketing and recruitment. But I share her with my co-manager at the Flint Farmers Market. Got it. So you know, it's in terms of sitting down with somebody on a day-to-day basis and, and holding their hands completely through the process, I don't really have the the availability to do that, sure. But I really, I really don't need to because why reinvent the wheel? People are already providing these services in our our community, and they are like begging to you know bring on new clients. Right. So let's find us somebody else and let us help somebody. And so I meet with a team from our chamber of commerce called the E Team, and it's a group of you know people who specifically deal with entrepreneurs and. You know, on a monthly basis, we get together and, and find out, you know, what, what each, each other is doing and how we can help each other and support each other and talk about fellow, you know, clients that we might share and, and talk about, you know, moving them forward. So it's kind of a team effort here in Flint in terms of trying to turn the economy around and spark, you know, the entrepreneur, you know, spirit. That's great. Um, we're going to take a we're going to take a short break here and hear from one of our sponsors here at Heritage Radio. And when we come back, um, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the Feast Cooking School that you run. All right, that sounds great. And this one is called Burgundy by the Hollows. We'll be right back. State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State Grown and Certified seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State Grown and Certified seal tells them their food is grown right, right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do, but the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and today I have joining me by phone from Flint, Michigan, Sean Gartland, who is the culinary director at the Flint Farmer's Market. Uh, And before the break, we were talking about Flint and talking about what's going on there with the infrastructure and the water issues. Um, But, Sean, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about your cooking school, Feast. Okay. um, So my background is uh, I worked as a chef for... I guess going back to my dishwasher days when I was 17, um, and I graduated from Johnson and Wales in, uh, University in, two, or, excuse me, 1998, and kind of did the usual work your way around restaurants. And, uh, back when my wife and I got married, I was living in Chicago and just decided that I, I was done cooking professionally and, uh, um, I just needed to, I needed to take a break, and so I found a place to teach cooking classes called the Chopping Block. Sure. 
And that was like the biggest light bulb going off over my head that you could ever experience. I loved teaching just regular Joe off the street how to cook. It was just the most amazing fun I've ever had. And so when my wife and I moved back to Michigan and started our family, I kind of got away from it for a little while. And then all of a sudden we kind of looked at each other one day and said, why don't you just start your own business? Hmm. So I've been teaching kind of a private client basis for a few years, uh, doing cooking classes in people's homes. And then when the market opened up, we have a huge demonstration kitchen here. And I started utilizing that for um, offering classes to the public. And so Feast Cooking School has kind of grown and grown within the last two to three years, kind of immensely. It's been, been a great experience. That's great. I mean, definitely, you know, I... Uh... I love the I love that idea that you know it becomes it becomes a chore. I mean, it, it's work, right? If you work in a kitchen, and you know how many onions did you cut in your career starting out from school, and you know it's like a pain in the ass. But then when you teach someone who has no idea, who doesn't even think about how like how is an onion structured or how do I chop carrots for this recipe, and when you see that sort of light bulb go off in them. It's awesome, right? I mean, and you know that you're you're actually changing people's lives. Like you are giving them skills that will make their day better in a really mm-hmm. physical way. I think my biggest challenge, uh, especially when I first started, was remembering that you know, yeah, I went through culinary school and I have spent a greater part of my twenties chained to a stone a stove, yep. you know, twenty twenty three hours a day. And so my expertise, you know, isn't exactly shared with the person sitting across from me learning how to make a, an omelet for the first time. And so you really have to take a step back and say, wait a second, this person really barely knows how to crack an egg. So you really got to go step by step with them and really explain and, um, you know, not be condescending, but, you know, be helpful. And, sure. uh, and, and that is what, you know, learning that process over the years has just brought me a lot of joy. And so teaching people how to cook, it's not a job. It's just fun, you know. <laughs> That's awesome. The uh, and I, I I did see that uh, you know some of the classes you run at the farmers market there um, are about limiting the effects of, of potential lead poisoning. Yeah. So as my, in my role as the culinary director here, um, we've partnered with um, Hurley Hospital, which is one of our our local hospitals in the area. Uh, you probably know the name Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha. Mm-hmm. Um, her her offices are actually housed right here in our market on the second floor. And so we've partnered with, with Pearly Children's Hospital and Michigan State Extension, which is a, just a shoot offshoot of the um, our you know local university, Michigan State University. So we work with the dietitians and the uh, educators there to put on daily um, cooking demonstrations for free at the Flint Farmers Market. So we're only open Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. So we try to make sure that each one of those days that we're open, at 12.30, we've got somebody in that kitchen teaching uh, recipes that are healthy, but more specifically high in vitamin C, iron, and calcium. Those are food, you know, those are things that you can put into your body to help mitigate the effects of lead. Sure. So it's been a great joy to, to teach people, you know, let's face, let's face it, I love making, you know, a hollandaise sauce or... <laughs> cooking five pounds of bacon, yep. but forcing myself to really focus on healthy eating habits and, and really teaching people who don't have very good access to, to healthy food, you know, how to prepare uh, an ingredient that they might see in the market but have never picked up before to, to really, you know, help them with their health. It's been great. It's very rewarding. 
Um, and uh, and you have three children, right? You have uh, a nine-year-old, a six-year-old, and a three-year-old. Yes. So my my hands are very full in yeah. that regard. <laughs> <laughs> I know it well. I have a seven-year-old and an almost three-year-old. <laughs> so sort of right there with you, except not with the not with the oldest one. Yeah, you're uh, you're feeling my pain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, how are how are they in the kitchen? Uh, they, you know what? They love to get in there and cook. They're mostly into baking, mm. which you know, truth be told, that's not my strong suit. But uh, anytime they can make anything into a batter and then lick it off the beaters, they're oh, pretty yeah. happy. Um, <laughs> my, I do have uh, my middle daughter. She, her name's Riley, and she's she's really into um, making things look like she's she's got a perspective in art. I'm talking about a you know a six year old here. I can't yep. believe that. But uh, yeah, she's so when she's when she's looking at food, she almost looks at it the same way I do. You know, she's like, how is it going to look on the plate? How, mm. You know. Um, and then my, my son Cooper is just, um, he's in that stage where whatever daddy does, he wants to do. Yeah. So if I'm in the kitchen cooking, he's in the kitchen cooking. If I'm wearing pants with a belt, he's wearing pants yeah. with a belt. I mean, it's just, uh, he, you know, whatever I do, he wants to mimic it. So he loves to get in there. I can give him a little, a little knife and let him, you know, carve it up a little bit. So it's fun. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, you know, I, I always encourage people to, to, put knives in their kids hands early right because it's a tool like anything else and you know once you learn i mean with my daughter i was really nervous i think at around four we gave her a knife for the first time and you know within like five minutes she cut her finger but two minutes after that once the tears stopped and she had a band-aid on she was right back at the board like ready to keep cutting ah nice I've had uh, one of the great things about working here is I've had the opportunity to teach a couple of um, kind of teenage cooking classes, after school type programs, and those have been uh, kind of a, a real fun treat for me because when you're you're in that you know 12 to 15 year old range, um, you think you know how to do everything, but you're still timid enough to ask for help. Yep. And uh, those kids, it it surprises me not only how savvy they are with food, you know. You start to talk to them about the restaurants they've gone to, or what they've eaten, or or what sorts of things they do at home. But um, but teaching, you know, working them through a knife skills class from start to finish, and then seeing by the end that you know they're they're chopping just as good as any adult I've ever taught. And and if they can keep that skill up, it's great for later in life. So yeah, ab- absolutely. What is uh, what what is your favorite class to teach at the cooking school? Um, I put on a knife skills class. Um, I try to put that on the calendar at least, you know, once every couple months. It's uh, and then basically because it's a very easy hands-on class to teach. Um, but it is definitely the one where halfway through class, you as you're working your way through all the different vegetables and, and practicing your knife strokes, you see that light bulb go off above people's heads, and they're like, "Oh, I get it." You know, you start breaking their bad habits that they might have, like running their finger down the, the, the spine of the knife or something and right. it's it's you know you, you get them going and you know you're working into your third or fourth vegetable and showing them how to slice it small and all of a sudden they start you know becoming efficient and everybody that walks away from that class has got a huge smile on their face and you know they can't believe like oh gosh you know it's, it's going to make my life in, in the kitchen so much easier and that's why it's my favorite because after you you can you know obtain some good knife skills Trying out a new recipe is not as scary as before. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because it it doesn't you know it it doesn't seem like so much work. I think that that's the feedback we always get <clears throat> is that you know people get home from work and they're tired and they think oh it's such a pain to cut up this stuff. If you teach them how to do it where it's not a pain, then the whole thing it opens up the door to really doing it much easier. Exactly. Exactly. And then as far as the as far as the cooking school goes, what. Uh, are there any classes that you sort of wish you could have or classes that you thought were going to do really well that kind of just didn't fly? I mean, we, we, you know, we put new classes on the calendar at the Brooklyn Kitchen all the time. And, you know, sometimes the class you don't expect to be a hit turns out to be a runaway hit. And the class that I'm really excited about sometimes doesn't actually nobody's interested in. Yeah, you know, I, I, I love cooking seafood. It's one of my favorite things in the world to cook. And I love to teach people about seafood because there's so much to know and so much to learn. And every time I put a seafood class on there, it's like all I hear is crickets. Nobody signs up. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, I just don't get it. So uh, I guess I have to start avoiding that. Um, but, you know, the ethnic food classes, if you, if you teach a Mexican class, a Thai class, or an Indian class, people seem to flock to that because, you know, those are um, techniques and ingredients that are really kind of foreign to people. They, they just don't, you know, they're not in their regular meat and potatoes type of diet routine. Yep. Um, they're not familiar with how to use them. And so people love to take those types of classes and really get enlightened about, you know, different regions. So. And the flavors are so exciting, right? I mean, I think that at least in, you know, in the in the Brooklyn food scene, there's been in the past you know five or ten years, and, and maybe you've you know you've probably experienced this in your career as well, a real you know a celebration of ingredients, which I love. I mean, I love the idea that yeah. you know we're talking about here's a farm that is raising the best cauliflower, and we want to just roast that and have it simply with salt and olive oil. I have huge respect for that. However, I also really love taking that cauliflower and making curry out of it. Uh-huh. And I feel like uh-huh. that's where people, you know, we're, we're in this moment where I think people are kind of getting a little tired of, or at least I'm getting a little tired of the kind of like, let's just celebrate the vegetable. Like let's celebrate the vegetable and then also celebrate the history of spices in the world and use those two things yeah. together. You got to have a lot of, a lot of things in your, uh, your arsenal. You can't just, you know, roast cauliflower every single day of the week. It's going to get, it's going to get tiresome. Yep. So, yeah, I, I love, you know, teaching people, you know, how to kind of wake things up a little bit. I think one of my favorite things about um, the ability to teach here at the market itself in this location is that whenever possible, I'm buying my ingredients from our market vendors, from our local farmers, and people always, always, always ask, where did you get that? Right. And I can say to them, well, here in the market, actually, you go talk to Mark Hoffman over at Hoffman's Chop Shop, and he's got some great grass-fed beef right now. And this is the cut we're working with. And I went out to his Uncle Randy's farm and saw, you know, the cows being raised and, and how well he treats them. And, you know, or I can say, you know, Aaron and Franklin at local grocers, you know, they're, they're growing these great vegetables up on a, you know, abandoned plot of land up in North Flint. And they're taking so much care out there. You know, so I love being able to tell those stories. I don't want to sound super like the super pretentious guy, like, you know, all of my stuff is super locally sourced. And, um, but for the fact of just being here in the market, I'm able to really grab some of those ingredients and tell a little bit of a story about it. Well, and, and they're coming from within the community of the market, which I think is, you know, that's, that's amazing. It's really, it's, uh, I think it's something that more, more places and more people should aspire to for sure. Yeah, definitely. 
Well, we're we're just about out of time, but I wanted to ask uh, Sean if you have anything anything happening at the market or coming up at the market or any type of vendor or food slot you wish you guys had at the market that you don't. You know, I can't say that I have any listeners in Flint per se who like want to open a stall at the farmers market, but maybe there's someone. You know, my my co manager Carrie Ann Martis and I we we both uh, would really love for somebody to come in and set up a stand of like pickles and olives and, you know, the big vats of olive oil and vinegar and that sort of thing. Um, it's just we haven't found the right person to, to do that yet. Um, it's definitely a niche that needs to be filled here at the market, but, um, you know, we just it just hasn't happened. And that's kind of self-serving on my part because I love pickles. And I wish right. I could come down out of my office and just, you know, you know, eat a nice, you know, locally made pickle every day. Sure. Um but as far as events going out at the market, we have tons of stuff happening here all the time. Actually, uh, I'm standing in the kitchen making my dish right now while I'm talking to you for our uh, we have a, a food event here on Friday night, um, a local nonprofit in the area called Red Ink. Um, they have a music venue that's an all-ages music venue. It's a nonprofit, um, you know, uh, concert place. So it's um, they, they celebrate uh, every year by having a fundraiser. And starting last year, they, they started to kind of make it food-focused. So we're, we've got chefs, um, I think two chefs coming in from San Francisco, uh, a couple of guys from New York City coming in, um, and then some of our local area chefs, and we're all kind of participating in a, a tasting event tomorrow night, or excuse me, Friday night. So that, that's happening, which is going to be fun. Um, I, I actually was approached um, probably about a month ago, and... I'm in the middle of setting this up, but we have a local uh, OHL, which is the uh, Ontario Hockey League. It's kind of the the next step before kids get to the NHL mm-hmm. for hockey. And we have a local team called the Flint Firebirds, and their uh, you know education liaison and, and general manager approached me about putting out a, a kind of a performance nutrition class for the players. Oh, cool. So they're going to be in here in November. Uh, all, you know, the whole team's coming in. I'm going to talk to them a little bit about, you know, putting the right fuel in your body to, uh, you know, make it to the next level. You know, one of the big complaints is that when these guys make it to the NHL or, you know, move progress on into, and in the hockey world, you know, once they start living on their own, they don't know how to cook for themselves, and it's nothing but fast food and, you know, canned goods. So they're going to try and, you know, show them how to properly fuel themselves up for the big game. That's great. Well, um, you know, thank you so much, Sean, for for joining me and taking time out of your out of your day in Flint um, to join me on the show. It's been it's been a real pleasure. Oh, thanks. No problem. Hey, I'm really glad you called and happy to share our story a little bit about Flint. And what's going on here? Uh, great. Um, well, listeners, you can find out more about the Flint Farmers Market at flintfarmersmarket.com. You can find. Uh, more about the cooking school at feastcookingschool.com or on Sean's blog, which is Feast on This Blog. I sense a sort of theme there. Um, and uh, the market looks great. So, you know, I, I really uh, I don't know when I will find myself in Flint, but I hope to find myself there sometime soon and uh, be able to come well, and check it out. You better look me up so I can buy you a drink. I absolutely will. Uh, and if you're in Brooklyn, right. please do the same. Uh, All right, will do. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears. A big thank you to Kristen Baylor, my producer here, and David Tatashore for engineering. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. And you can follow me on Instagram, at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week.
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.